Thanks for downloading the 29th in our series of episodes of the C-Suite podcast that we are recording in partnership with the European PR agency Taito and their own Without Borders podcast, where we are interviewing leaders of unicorn companies to find out about the key issues, pain points, and challenges that startups face and how they can address them with a strategic approach to marketing and communications. Uh, My name is Russell Goldsmith. My co-host for this episode is Taito's senior partner, Holly Justice. And today we are thrilled to be joined online from Amsterdam by Shane Hapak, a CEO of Molly, one of Europe's fastest growing payment service providers. Founded in 2004, the company reached unicorn status in September 2020 and is now valued at $6.5 billion. Welcome to the show, Shane. Can we start by you giving us a bit of background to the company and also just talk us through the area of business that uh, you are seeking to disrupt? Sure. Uh, so uh, Molly is a payment service provider, as you mentioned already. So uh, the genesis of the company was to focus on making it easier for, at the time, startup and very small businesses in the Dutch market to connect to payment systems, banks, and, and other providers of payment services. At the time, that was incredibly cumbersome, and now it's merely very cumbersome for most. So I think the company grew organically by word of mouth for a long period of time. And really, I, I always tell people that it's sort of a company of, of two halves. The, the first half was the the bootstrapped founder-led version uh, where it was reinvesting its own capital. And the second half uh, where the where the growth got turbocharged was through taking in outside investment, which is very common in tech and in the fintech space, which only happened sort of late 2018, early 2019. So over that time, the, the product suite has expanded. The geography has expanded from just the Netherlands, first to Belgium, then to Germany, France, and ultimately the UK. And successive funding rounds of investment rounds have allowed us to continue to invest to grow the business in many different areas and predominantly product and engineering, but also in uh, sales marketing and and other aspects of of being a little bit more visible in the market uh, over the course of the last few years. As far as which industry we're seeking to disrupt, I think in general, online payments is still a maturing sector. It's not what I'd call a fully mature sector. There are a number of different players doing what we do, but still for our segment, which is predominantly small business, it becomes easier and easier for smaller companies to get access to more enterprise-grade services. And that can only happen through companies like us uh, really forcing the market open from what was traditionally a stronghold of of banks uh, and other more legacy tech players. And Shane, could you tell us a little bit about your career history and how you came to to be a company leader and and maybe a touch on your entrepreneurial journey? Sure. I I started my career in quite an unentrepreneurial way. Uh, I went into investment banking out of university uh, and then did a few years for corporate finance for a larger organization. But uh, I never really found that satisfying. I wanted to have a higher impact job. So I've been in payments now for 17 years. The first company I joined was uh, even earlier stage than Molly, where it is when I joined this business. I joined a business, a Dutch business actually called Global Collect, although I joined in the, in the US market when that company was around 35 people total. So again, uh, early employee, not, not a founding member of the founding team. And the entrepreneurial journey I went through with that company from 35 to 500 people, I found really satisfying. And I also then went from there to a more mature company, but was being taken out of a bank by a private equity firm. So a different kind of entrepreneurial journey, sort of shedding bank DNA and running as a standalone business. And that company went from 1,000 people to 58,000 by the time I left through a combination of organic growth, but also some heavy M&A activities along the way. And then I think coming back to Molly for me was about getting closer to those scale-up routes where 
every day brings a new challenge, but also you're building things versus really optimizing what's what's already there. And now's probably quite a good point to bring up, actually, Shane, but pretty much every interview that we've recorded in this series so far has been with the founder of the company that's also the CEO. And now you were brought in as the CEO after Molly established itself as a unicorn. So it would be interesting to know how that relationship works with Molly's founder. Does it create different challenges to the role of a CEO that, that maybe we haven't touched upon before with previous guests? I mean, it's a good question. Obviously, I was a, I was a divisional CEO before this, so this is my first uh, true top job. So I can't comment on what that might be like uh, compared to what I've done previously. I mean, I can say that it's not uncommon for the founder's role in any company to evolve over time, even if they're still in the position of CEO. They tend to be surrounded by people with different skills in different areas. So most people don't know I was predated by another CEO. So I didn't succeed the founder directly. Uh, there was somebody in between him and me for a, a fair number of years, actually. So that sort of interaction between founder and the organization and the company CEO was already sort of reasonably established by the time I came. Our founder, in our case, is still the majority shareholder of the business. So he has a very big voice, obviously. But I think we complement each other well. My career was largely in enterprise commercial functions. So account management, building sales teams, uh, you know, building a sales process, et cetera. Whereas I think Adrian's career started in engineering, product, and marketing. So I think these are good complementary skill sets. And we work together well to leverage each other's expertise. And of course, our interests are aligned. I mean, I think both of us want the company to grow. He's not gone on to found a competitor uh, where, you know, we're at odds with one another. So in that sense, it's not something I try to overthink. I mentioned in the intro, the company is now valued at six and a half billion. That, that's the result of your most recent funding, which was $800 million. So that, that actually makes you one of the most valuable startups in Europe. What we're keen to to look at is is where the focus now is for the next 12 months and you know where's that investment going to be used for Molly? I guess I'd start by saying you know private company evaluations are it's not something that we obsess over I mean it's a, it's a huge validation of the business model and hopefully of the team and what the team is trying to achieve but it's not the primary measure of success that we look at. Uh, I think ultimately in the wrong run of course you want to create equity value for shareholders but really the mission of the company was to become a complete player for SMBs online and then potentially ultimately also offline uh, and to expand into other financial services and to try to take the product market fit in Western Europe and really first go pan-European, but ultimately we don't see any reason why this couldn't be a global category business as well. So, uh, and there are other category players in our space that uh, have managed to become global. So I think you know, for us, the investment capital is first and foremost in the product, but also in things that underpin the product. Um, running a payments business at high scale in this environment also involves constantly uh, upgrading cybersecurity and other tech, um, you know, constantly refreshing and modernizing the technology estate. Yeah, and then ultimately becoming a distribution arm as, as widely as you possibly can through partners, through marketing activities and other. And those are quite capital intensive, which is good for us because I think it means that you know, not every company can just spin up a, a Molly competitor overnight. And, and just coming back to the topic of leadership again for a moment, are there any individuals that have had a, a huge impact in your development as a leader? And if so, can, can you talk to us a bit about, about them and, and why they had such a big impact on you? I don't think it's one unique person. Um, I think I've been very lucky to have been in a space that 
has gotten progressively more attractive and interesting to outside investors, journalists, et cetera. I think you know, when I started in payments, people still asked me if I was working in debt collection or if I worked for PayPal. So I just think in general, the business has become a lot more mainstream. And along the way, I've been super privileged to work with you know, other great teammates, interesting leaders of businesses, interesting investors, and, and also interesting customers. I think, you know, as I said, the, the genesis of my career and trying to learn the payments business wasn't trying to satisfy the needs of super well-resourced, very sophisticated enterprise clients online. And I think that that taught me a lot. I think I've, I've developed a ton of respect for the Google business, the Netflix business, and how those companies consume and work with payments and payment providers. Um, uh, you know, has really taught me what the standard needs to look like. And then, of course, in this job, my mission is to make that standard more accessible for smaller companies. So I'd say I learned a lot from customers. And the leadership front, um, you know, I've, I've seen good leaders and bad leaders like everybody. I think what I what's resonated with me most is when it becomes clear that people are, are able to build a great team around them and really try very hard to deliver through the team and sort of deflect individual credit. So I can think of a number of cases where it's really felt like a team achievement versus the leader's achievement sort of facilitated by the team. So I've, I've tried to bring that into my, my own leadership style. You know, and ultimately, I think there's no real substitute for a little bit of experience. You know, I think a lot of what I've gained is just the accumulated wisdom of making mistakes and figuring out as much about how you don't want to be and how you don't want to lead as, as how you do want to lead. So, yeah, sorry, there isn't one person whose book I recommend that everybody read, but um, it is really a collection of British leadership style, the American style, the Dutch style, even the Latin American style. So, I would say uh, I'm a mutt, but only the best of breed. You just mentioned mistakes there. Would you, would you be willing to share any of the biggest ones? Oh, sure. I mean, look, everybody makes mistakes. Uh, and I think our industry is somewhat forgiving because the, you know, there's so many different outcomes you need to generate. It's not like a consumer product where you, know, you launch it and it flops or something. You know, there's, there's a number of different ways in which clients consume the service. Most of my mistakes involve, over time have just involved... Um, there's a high degree of detail management and complexity about the product that we put forward. So, you know, any time where I've underestimated that complexity or, or really not respected, you know, uh, how many little things need to line up in order to get the right outcome for the client, I think that's that's been dangerous. And also, as the leader, where you're funneling investment to different areas, I mean, the temptation is always to say, you know, let's go sort of front office first. You know, there's hired big sales force and you know, drum up demand, and then the rest of the product will catch up. And over time, I think what you realize is most of the successful players in our space have actually taken a back-to-front approach, which is if you build a great product, which is super operationally robust, very tech-savvy and easy to consume, it sort of sells itself. So I think yeah, that's probably most of the mistakes I've made in not realizing just how powerful that equation can be. And so obviously, we're trying to to learn from that here. I imagine being a leader of a successful company, you are required to have some quite specific skill sets and be very good at them. But also, as well as that, kind of you need an exceptional team behind you to support there. Kind of from your point of view, what would you say are your kind of greatest strengths? But also, it would be interesting to hear a little bit about the wider Molly management team and the strengths that they have. First and foremost, I think I still have a great curiosity for how the business works, you know, how our industry works. So it's it's a very fast-moving dynamic industry. So probably 
you know, a willingness to learn. And I'm still learning every day on the job rather than, you know, pronounce yourself an expert and sort of close your mind to new ideas and new ways of thinking. But then also really a respect for the guts of it, the details. I'd like to think that by now, you know, I know enough about how our services really put together to be valuable in a conversation with an engineer, an operations person, a finance person, a, a compliance person, et cetera. So, you know, I've worked hard to build kind of a 360 understanding of how a payments business should work. What I would tell the team or what I've told the teams that I've led in the past is, you know, payments is one of those industries where there's there's nowhere really to hide because everybody works on the customer outcome. There's really no invisible team. You know, maybe you don't sit directly in front of a customer, but you contribute to their experience with the way they use the product. You're not very remote from it, no matter what your job is. So it's very integrated. So really, I think regardless of what people's specific skills are, of course, you don't want a team of, you know, all nuts and bolts, uh, bean counting specialists, you know, that that have no empathy for customers. And then on the same token, you don't want a bunch of people who are only creative types and and don't respect the details. But ultimately, this the simplest way to describe it is ability to work cross-functionally, which sounds so plain vanilla, but trust me, it's so hard. <laughs> it's you know, finding people that are really good at that and are willing to work at it incessantly in spite of personality differences, cultural differences, geographic and time zone differences. That's always, I think, every leader's greatest challenge. A key part of these discussions that, that we're having is on communications and, and culture. You kind of touched on this a little bit when you were talking about valuations and, and stuff of the business. And and obviously, this happened just slightly before you, you joined the business. But when, when the company became a, a unicorn, did that change the perception of it at all in any way? I think... Of course, it's a validation. And of course, when you're a challenger or a smaller company in an industry which does and still is dominated to a degree by sort of very large players, it's nice for talent attraction and in general, I think for company morale to say like, hey, someone is willing to recognize and value the work that we put in. So it's a thing to be proud of. You know, unfortunately, I think over the last five or six years, there's been enough investor capital, enough enthusiasm in general for the fintech space that unicorn isn't as rare as a unicorn should be in terms of seeing one in the wild, right? So, okay, it used to be there were you know, five in Europe and now there's 55 or something like that. So again, the external valuation attached to the business is not nearly as important as what the customers say, uh, how the customers feel about what we're doing for them. And you know, I want to be very careful not to lose sight of that. And you spend too much time celebrating that achievement. You take your eye off the ball for the next startup company to come along and disrupt you. And then they'll become the unicorn and you know, we'll be an also ramp. I like to think that um, it's good to stop, pause, take stock, high five for a little bit, but you know, it's, it's really right back to work after that. And so what has been at the heart of your strategy in terms of differentiating yourself? I mean, I think in the payments business, yeah, there's, it's not the same sort of intellectual property estate as, I don't know, maybe uh, the, the pharmaceutical business or something like that. So, you know, we're not looking to patent something that people, it's impossible to copy. I think really what we're trying to differentiate is on the average experience of the average client that would use our services, they are uh, often overlooked or ignored by banks or incumbent providers. They're viewed as less profitable, less interesting. It's still a hard service for people to understand that aren't native to the industry. So if your real business is you know, selling shoes on the internet, you're, you're not meant to be a payments expert. So making it easy 
making it intuitive, trying to use plain speak, whereas still giving these customers the feeling that you know they can be treated like a, a larger enterprise in terms of giving them some insights, some consultancy, some customer service, uh, and some degree of transparency. I think and the SMB industry is also known for sort of heavy-handed tactics and the termination fees, uh, strange price increases, sort of opaque charging structures, etc. So a high NPS does not necessarily make us successful in its own right, but you could say that versus the broader basket of competitors, that's one area in which we think we can do a better job. You know, and then ultimately, if you can make the product also amazing on top of that, then you know, that's very, very hard for any company to do, regardless of what segment they serve. And how would you describe the culture, at Molly, and, and what have you guys done to nurture and develop that? Yeah, I mean, every company has values. I would say having worked in a number of businesses, a lot of those values seem to blend into one another. So ours are, you know, be bold, be loved, be authentic. So I think that for me was different enough than what I'd experienced previously that I thought it's it's a good way to anchor around what the culture of the business should be. So really customer first mentality is a good way to try to build a culture. So people that should want to work here because they care about customers, not necessarily because, I don't know, they come in as payment experts, although we need them, you know, we need to find a way to make them into experts over time. Being authentic, I think, and that just makes the overall working environment more supportive, uh, a good place to grow your career. I think, depending on your cohort, right, the, the younger generation, the newer to workforce or people that are in, you know, what's called their first, second or third job, I think they have different expectations about what a company should be and should do. So mission-driven or purpose-driven, because obviously we're in the financial services space. We're not necessarily in climate tech or something. It's a little bit easier to connect and more intuitive in that way. I think a lot about just trying to hire the right group of people that feel like um, you know they can express themselves well here, that there's opportunities to progress and that you know there's opportunity to work in a challenging environment, but one that is, yeah, as you said, nurturing or uh, you know allows for freedom of expression, you know, and new ideas too. I mean, just because the industry has developed over time doesn't mean there won't be disruptive developments, even if they haven't happened yet. And those are likely to come from companies that allow people that kind of intellectual freedom. And you mentioned just then challenging environments. There's a lot of economic uncertainty around at the moment. How do you or how are you planning to adjust your communications approach to maintain the confidence that you've built up in the company? Yeah, it's a very challenging topic. There hasn't been any handbook in the last two years called Leading Through a Pandemic. So, you know, just as I sort of thought I'd line that that bit up the best I possibly could, then, you know, now we're... We're going through a, a tough time. I mean, I'm old enough to have remembered 2001 and 2008, different types of economic uncertainty. This one seems to be uh, unique in its own right. And it's also very focused now on tech and tech companies and you know, prioritizing profit over growth. All, all I can do is assume that people read the news because the news is prolific and everywhere. Second is to be open about where we're at as a business, what we're doing well, what we're not. We are well capitalized, but we also tell people that we have a huge responsibility not to be foolish about that. And you know, we need to adjust our expectations for growth and aggressiveness to match, I think, what the climate will support, right? If the if the GDP of small business is going to go backwards, I don't think there's anything that we can do magic. Uh, we can't do magic, right? Our our customers, uh, if they're suffering, you know, we need to be prepared to kind of pull in and 
and uh, shelter with them a little bit, right? We still have plenty of things that we can do. We're doing a lot, but you know, in an era of moderated expectations on growth, and you know, we just need to be responsible. So that we're very, I'm very transparent about that with people, especially people that you know, if you join the workforce in the last ten years, you've only seen up. And just thinking for a minute about internal communications, can you share any approaches to internal communications at, at Molly that have worked really well for you guys? I think, you know, we've, again, leading through the pandemic. So, you know, in the beginning, we were very focused on what's the easiest way to reach people through remote means. So, you know, I think we did a lot of remote check-ins. We did a higher frequency, lower duration, you know, just to, to avoid that people felt too isolated. And now that we're returning, I think, more to a hybrid model, but people can get together in person. And we had a first in-person company event uh, a couple of months ago after a two and a bit year hiatus. So that isn't an internal comms moment. And you know, we really tried to maximize that because we're only going to do it one time this year. I think we got the most out of it. I think the other is uh, we like for people to hear from the leadership team. We allow people to ask any question they want of the leadership team, you know, we we address those questions sometimes in the appropriate subgroup, but we're not afraid to stand and take questions from the group. And I'm one of these guys that's around a lot. So I also do a little bit of old fashioned internal communication of management by walking around. We have no offices here. So open plan seating. You know, there's uh, one coffee machine that serves at least 150 people. And I drink a lot of coffee. So, you know, you can just in general see and talk to me, which, you know, depending on what you're used to and where you come from, you know, sometimes the CEO is like a mythical character that has a different lift to a different floor uh, to an office. whose doors never open. So uh, we're in that sense, we're very much a modern tech company. It's uh, I'm not hard to find. Did you do anything special for that in-person event? Anything was special compared to what <laughs> people were used to, right? No, I mean, I, look, we we did a mixture of uh, content, fun, rotate, rotating people around, finger painting together. Okay, to some respects, it's really just about creating human connection. I don't think yeah. there's much of a substitute for that. So. How many people did you have there then? I mean, we invited the whole company. Uh, I think we got a pretty high hit rate, minus a few vacations and you know outstanding commitments. So yeah. you know, it was at least six hundred. So it was, big, it was a big event. Yeah. But again, yeah, it still great. feels relatively small for me. I mean, I think an organization, even given the amount of hiring, it's it's it can still be a familiar place as long as you keep it flat enough and encourage people really to circulate, have dialogue, don't be afraid of one another. And yeah. little things, we have a Slack bot that pairs people for a random coffee every week. You can sign up if you want. So I, I do that. And people kind of like, you really do that or is your just name in there? You know, have a stunt double or something? I'm like, <laughs> no, you know, I, I'll really go for coffee with any random person in the business. 15 <laughs> minutes a week. I think anybody should be able to find that kind of time. That's great. You just mentioned the hiring there. Do, are you involved in in much of the hiring? I sometimes, if I'm, if I'm useful, you know, I sometimes I've been involved in the committee to persuade somebody really talented to take a chance on us. There are people that work here that I've worked with before, directly or indirectly, customers, uh, former colleagues, et cetera. So that's a nice way to get involved. I did, you know, I built my own team and some degree the more extended team. So yeah, I definitely go where I'm needed. Do I interview every candidate? No, uh, that was, would not have been sustainable at our pace of hiring from last year. But, you know, as we now mature and grow into ourselves uh, there's opportunities maybe to do that differently next year so 
yeah take a look at it as with everything you know we will tune the knobs for 2023 and we may do some different stuff <laughs> and switching from internal to external then how do you view your role and you know as, a, as an external spokesperson represent and, and representative of, of the business and what have you learned along the way uh, it's a very good question i mean i think it's it's tough i would say it's similar to business travel there's never it's, it's either too much or too little it's just one of those things where it feels very hard to get it right because you can't not be visible in the industry to a degree because branding does matter it is a trust brand right people are trusting with their money so they it's nice if they can see that leadership of the company that are real people and you know molly to some people kind of came from out of nowhere I mean, it's been around for a while but its profile increased dramatically with the explosive growth during the the pandemic and sometimes it was about telling the story because we were not as well known as some other companies that get to our level of, of external success so i would say i, I sort of over indexed on it in the beginning as a new leader in a newish business um, with new investors, et cetera. You know, now I think we try to spread it out a little bit within the team. We try to empower the local leadership who are really the local market experts, speak the language. So, you know, while I can very well do an interview with a German language newspaper, it's to me, it's more effective if we showcase our local credential by having other people that can be join in and be the external face of the business. But I do like there are some interesting interactions between our contemporaries, even my competitors. You know, there are some journalists I really respect in the space. There's some research analysts I really respect in the space. So uh, I do circulate, but I try not to make it so all consuming that I'm not sitting behind the desk doing work. Is that something that that comes natural to you in terms of getting up, doing these interviews, doing talks at events? Or is it, you know, have you had to formulate a plan? I don't mind. I'm one of these people that actually loves public speaking. I, and this must be something in the water uh, where <laughs> I grew up. But no, I, I I do like it. Some environments are more productive than others. I think I prefer more open-ended Q&A or discussions. Really standing up and broadcasting to people, I think it's... And we've all experimented over time with how much of that people can take before they kind of tune out. I like to promote our company, but I I don't like to be too salesy. So I shy away a little bit from people saying, you know, please stand up and really give us a commercial on Molly because um, I find that less satisfying than uh, more uh, curated interactions with somebody who's really thinking hard about how to make themselves successful. Where was that, Walter? Where did you grow up? (laughs) I I was born uh, in the U.S. actually, in in just outside Chicago. So, but it's a long time ago. I've lived most of my life as an adult outside the States. So I have a wife from Mexico that I met in Geneva. My kids were born in London. So you seem to have taken um, the, all the elements of being an internal and external spokesperson in your stride, but in your journey, what has been the biggest communications challenge that you've personally faced and, and what did you do to overcome it? You can never deploy a strategy that fits the whole organization. I always find that fascinating. Now, whether it's all hands meetings or emails or Slack or note cards on people's desks, it's you really have to do multiple different things to try to reach the same audience. And sometimes it's a bit unpredictable how people choose to engage. So what I've learned is really you just if you write the perfect newsletter and you send it every day to the same person for a week, you, know, you still might not get them to read it. 
But if you have the same content on a podcast, they can use when they're running or something. So I think it's just respecting the fact that people definitely consume information differently and you need to be thoughtful about which channels, which mediums do people work on. The other thing I would say is we just did a fascinating survey. This is from my last company, which do you understand the strategic goals of the business, right? And it's an anonymous survey. Unfortunately, as a leader, you really wish you could de-anonymize that to a degree, right? So 75% of people say, yeah, I understand the strategy and 25% don't. And get together the leadership team. So that's awful. Like one in four people don't understand the strategy. So I spent the whole year just, I mean, we hammered it. I mean, hammered it down. We put, again, note cards on people's desks and, and, you know, it was an all outcomes assault for the year. And we surveyed the same body of people next year. It's like, do you understand the strategy? And it was like 80%. It's a bit tongue in cheek, but it's more like it's, it's just understanding that, you know, some people just require you know, quite a lot of 360 view. And, and also you need to be thoughtful about whether people that are in your organization are investing themselves in learning, growing, really, you know, trying to get at what the company is trying to achieve. Right? So it may be that I need to tell them better. And it may also be that, you know, we need to be very thoughtful about selection criteria and, you know, how we think about the people that work in the organization. Because I think that for me is an interesting comms challenge that uh, I wouldn't say I've solved it, but in more recognizing that it exists is already I think a, a byproduct of having learned along the way. Shane, this this final question is is kind of linked, I guess, to to what you were just saying there. But it's it's something we've asked everyone uh, who's been on this series, and that's if you if you could go back in time and speak to your old younger self. That's all the way back to Chicago. But what guidance would you give yourself about communications? I would say, if I look back on how I was when I was younger, I really wanted to surround myself with and found myself you know, able to work with only people that were very much like me. I think most people as they're growing in their career, they struggle to understand that it takes different personality types and you really need to create a, a room full of people of different styles in order to get really the best out of the business. So that can be everything from, you know, hiring a, a team of people that are too much like you, you know, not creating an opportunity for passionate debate, you know, not allowing for necessarily for opposing points of view, you know, and in general kind of almost, you know, forcing your style on people, which I think is quite common, right? Particularly when, if you're ambitious or, you know, if you're viewed to be uh, somebody who's working hard, you know, a bit of that gets tolerated early on, but I did get some very good advice, I think, in my early thirties from people that said, look, you could really go far. If you could sort this bit out, if you could recognize this and, you could alter what uh, my former CEO called your situational leadership ability. Then, you know, you could be the CEO of a company one day. So I didn't name who gave me that advice. Uh, I didn't ask his permission. I, I would say that was valuable. And I listened and yeah, hopefully uh, others would agree. That's a great answer. Uh, Shane uh, Hapak, thank you so much for joining us today. Really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Holly, uh, thoughts on what Shane had to share with us? One of the things that I thought was great that, that kind of he subtly, or probably without even realising, weaved through the whole conversation we just had was his uh, his approach to leadership and 
I think he summarised it really nicely in that last question you just asked him, Russ, and how he learned to adapt and evolve his leadership style to enable him to, to get the most out of his team. And I thought that the things that it feels like were really important to him from a leadership perspective were always being curious and always being flexible to be communicate and be there with the team however they want you to be and I, I can see that it probably gets a lot out of the company as a result of that and it was um clearly more than just an answer to a question because it came up time and time again in the discussion yeah definitely brilliant okay well that's it for another episode so if you want to find out more about Molly, uh, their website is simply molly.com. Uh, we'd obviously love to hear your comments on today's chat. You can do that by sharing them on our Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter feeds, or you can uh, do it in the comments of the YouTube version of this podcast. Those are all linked from the top of our website at csweetpodcast.com, where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes, plus links to where you can follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via the likes of Spotify and Apple. And if you've liked what you heard, uh, please do give us a positive rating and review we're of course available on all podcast apps just search for the c-suite podcast and hit follow or subscribe and don't forget you can also subscribe to the without borders podcast from our partners at taito all the details for that are on their website so just head to taitopr.com and uh, click on the podcast link in the top nav bar. Whilst you're there, you can also download a copy of Growing Without Borders, the Unicorn CEO Guide to Communication and Culture. It's a great overview of the first 15 of our Unicorn interviews. Um, obviously, if you are a Unicorn leader yourself and you'd like to be part of this series, please do get in touch via the contact form on the website at csweetpodcast.com. It may not be you, it may be one of your colleagues, but do uh, give us a shout. Of course, anyone can get in touch with any feedback you may have. And finally, you can also reach me directly via Twitter using at Ross Goldsmith, or you can find me on LinkedIn. But uh, for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.